I mean, it's Christmas. Who's excited? I mean, I'm excited. It is Christmas. It has come. Uh, you, you walk in through the snow. Uh, you enter into the village. It's important as we, as we walk into the very, very first weekend of the month of December here at Mosaic Church uh, that we enter directly into what is Christmas. I, I know Christmas is later on in the month, but, but we love to celebrate the reality of Christmas from the second the month of December begins all the way through to the very end because it is such an extraordinarily special time. Now, now I grant you, with Christmas comes a little bit of panic, right? Because it's Christmas and there's parties to be had and expectations and presents to buy and wrap and, and, and things to, to get on with and, and, and all sorts of things that come with Christmas that takes our already busy lives and only expands that, narrowing our bandwidth and causing us to feel a little constricted. And, and so there is that, but, but somehow, despite all the hustle and bustle that comes with Christmas, there is something about this season that uh, moment by moment, we find ourselves in these little spaces where you just kind of feel this deep sense of quiet and of hopefulness and of a sense of more than just the, the cycle of life we go through. Christmas lends itself to these sit by the fire. Reflect, think, remember. It's, it's a beautiful season. It's a season full of hope. And, and I think it's important for us as we enter into the month of December that we ask ourselves, why is it that this particular season is so full of hope? Why is it that in the midst of our cultural context, it still somehow bleeds through, especially for those of us that know the reality of why we celebrate Christmas, that know Christ? There is a depth of hope that comes with this month, and it is the reason we celebrate it the entire month of December. To really understand where the hope of Christmas comes from, because we could just kind of say, well, you know, Jesus came and he was born and, and he's our hope. So there it is. And, and yes, that's true. But the layers of where hope really comes from and why that is so hopeful, to really understand those layers, we have to go further back than the traditional Christmas story that happens in the beginning of the Gospels of the New Testament. We have to go all the way back to the very beginning of time where God created us as a human race into the story and the events that took place there set the stage for us to understand why this particular season and the story that comes with Christmas invokes such a sense of hope in us and why we ought to go soak in it all month long. So where does our story begin? As many of you know, the story begins in the book of Genesis, the book of beginnings. Genesis chapter 1, we are created as a human race in Adam and Eve into an, an amazing environment, the Garden of Eden, where we have perfect and right relationship with one another. Adam and Eve are in perfect relationship with one another. We have perfect and right relationship with the creation around us, right? The lion lays down with the lamb. We're hanging out with the animals. It's amazing. Creation is not uh, hurting and against us. We are not against creation. We have a perfect relationship with creation to enjoy the freedoms of creation. And we have a perfectly right relationship with God. He is perfectly intimate with us. And so in that rightness of relationship, we experience total freedom, an extraordinary peace, and a wonderful love that we have, right? And the enemy of God, 
who had rebelled against God and whose, whose entire directive in his own mind was to cause all of creation to rebel against God comes to us and says, you, you know, God has not given you everything. You think you have everything, but you don't have everything. God is holding back from you what is really yours to have. If you eat of the fruit that he's forbidden you to eat of, you will become your own God. You will pursue your own destiny. You will write your own story. And that's what he's trying to keep you from, the knowledge of good and evil. He doesn't want you to have it because then you'll be like him and you won't need him. And we, having everything at our disposal, lacking for nothing, we chose to want more. And we ate of the fruit to see what more could we have of this everything that we don't have. Ironically, we already had everything. We had perfect intimacy with God. Everything. And in eating the fruit, the forbidden fruit, what entered into our story and all of creation was not divinity. It was not our destiny of being able to do what we want and become who we want. Sin and death entered our story. And it broke right relationship with God, right relationship with each other, right relationship with creation. And we found ourselves living a life of conflict and brokenness. This was the beginning of our story. We went from having everything to having nothing. Adam and Eve had a unique perspective that we need to remind ourselves of. Because you see, you and I, we can't possibly imagine what it must have been like to experience that. See, we were born into this. We were born into sin and death. We were born into conflict. The second you left your, your mother's womb, you started the conflict. I mean, the second we leave our mother's womb, we're like, I'm going to man manipulate this person until they die. Right? We start screaming immediately. We're like, you're going to give me what I want. And the parent who birthed you, they were reading books to try to figure out how to conform and control you so that they could have you do what they need you to do. We start our relationships in conflict. We have no concept of what it is like to have the extraordinary life of everything because we start lacking. And so this is just what we know. But Adam and Eve knew life before the fall. Can you imagine what that must have been like? To know what you had to know what you had, to know what it was like to have absolute unhindered relationship with God, to know what it was like to have no sin, no death, no experience of brokenness, and then one day not to have it. And for God to say, you've lost it. You've lost it. Now you will face the reality of conflict. For the rest of your life, living out in the ordinary devastation of sin and death instead of the extraordinary wonder of the story of God. And you will live your story, and your story is not a good one. I'll tell you, if ever there is a space to say that a human being should have felt hopeless, that's probably it. Having known full life and lost it to death. And in the hopelessness that Adam and Eve must have experienced, Instead of God abandoning them to that hopelessness, you know what he does? He immediately enters their broken story and he says to them, I know your story's broken. I know that you've lost everything that once was good and you now just have what isn't. But I'm going to take this terrible story and I am going to write into it an extraordinary story that will make the first one where you lived in the garden pale in comparison to what I'm going to do next. 
And from that point on, God begins to author a story throughout the Old Testament. He chooses for himself a people group. He pulls them out. He rescues them from another people group, the, the people of Israel from the people of Egypt. He sets them on a path where they would receive the law, uh, what is right and good, where they would receive the sacrificial system by which they could work at uh, uh, preserving some relationship with God until he could remedy the problem that we had as human beings. He, he set them into the promised land. He became a protection over them and he began to communicate with them, telling them his story. It's awesome. And he did that so that all nations would know who he is and what he's like. And then as that unfolded and that people group struggled back and forth, they would rebel against him. They would be an adulterous people. Uh, they would get captivated uh, by other things and they would be taken captive. Then he would rescue them from their captivity. Then they would thank him profusely. And then soon enough, they'd be captivated by the things and do it all over again. And the cycle went up and down. And throughout that cycle, you know what God did? He would whisper to them, this cycle that you're experiencing where you can't maintain righteousness, I am going to undo this cycle for you. I am going to send one who will rescue you from all this bondage and all this slavery and all this poverty and all this insanity in which you live. And through his prophets, he made promise of hope, promise of hope, promise of hope. And then at the very end of the story of the Old Testament, the very last prophet that speaks in the Old Testament the very last paragraph of the very last prophet of the Old Testament. Do you know what he says? You know what God says through that prophet? Well, you ought to know. So grab your Bibles and let's go take a look because this is awesome, okay? Turn to the book of Malachi chapter four. Malachi chapter four on page 891 of the Bibles we provide. And just in case you're not sure that I'm telling the truth, there's Malachi chapter four. Watch this. Watch this. It's awesome. Turn the page. Blank. New Testament. It is literally the last paragraph in the Old Testament. Nothing below it. Nothing past it. Watch what he says, okay? Last paragraph, Old Testament. Here we go. Malachi chapter four, verse one. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked and they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Herob for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction, period, turn page, end of Old Testament. Isn't that awesome? So God takes the last prophet that speaks and this is what he says to the last prophet in the last word on the last paragraph. The day is coming when I will come and the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings and set my people free and the wicked shall no longer reign on this planet. Isn't that exciting? 
That's exciting, isn't it? You know what happens next? Right after that paragraph? 400 years of absolute silence from God. 400 years of absolute silence from God. No prophets, no revelation, no speaking, no promises, nothing. God is silent. Unexpected, isn't it? You know who wasn't silent? God's enemies were not silent. The enemies of the people of God were not silent. Do you know what happened in those 400 years? Just FYI, right? The day is coming. I'm going to send Elijah the prophet to come and reconcile fathers to children and children to fathers. He will rise. The sun will come in, in righteousness with healing in its wings. Silence. 400 years. Persia. 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 Persia wasn't silent. Persia rose to power and overthrew the people of Israel. Then right after Persia, Greece rose to power. And Greece took over the known world, including the people of God. And then right after Greece, that broke into four different kingdoms. And Syria came to power, and they were terrible. And then Syria, uh, while they were in power, Egypt, the very people that had God's people captive in the first place, they came to power. And you know who came after Egypt and Syria? Rome. Rome. The great and mighty empire of Rome that took over the known world and swallowed up every people group. Rome that we encounter in the time of Jesus. Rome that nobody could stand up against. Rome came to power. So the people of Israel hear from the last prophet, Malachi, the day is coming. And they're not for one generation, not for two, not for three, but for generations. All they see is the power of evil reigning on this planet. Have you ever felt hopeless like God isn't hearing you? Have you ever felt that way? Have you ever felt like God isn't listening to your prayers? Have you ever felt like God has abandoned you? Have you ever felt that way? Did it take you 320 years to come to that conclusion? Did it take God being silent for 320 years for you to go, okay, that's it. I can't do it anymore. I have held out for 320 years, faithfully believing, but I've had it. You've abandoned me. No, no, no. It takes us like a minute and a half. The second he's not doing what we want, where are you? I've begged and prayed. It's been a month. Right? So when we start talking 400 years, you have to understand generations have come and generations have gone under captivity, in poverty, under slavery, and there has been no sun rising of righteousness with healing in its wings. There has been no Elijah coming. There has been nothing. Nothing. Do you know what happened also during that time? The Pharisaical movement believed at least a portion of them, that in that very prophecy from Malachi, did you hear where he said, make sure you keep the laws of Moses and then I will send Elijah? So what they did is they, they believed that if they behaved righteously without exception, that that would usher in God's faithfulness to bring about the coming of the prophet Elijah that would then release the Savior that would then set them free. So they started, during those 400 years, establishing a system of legalism that would suffocate the people of God. Remember when Jesus came and he spoke to the Pharisees and the Sadducees and he said, your law uh, over the people, the thousands of laws you've written into the books have become a burden to my people. 
That also happened during those 400 years. So can you imagine the people of God under slavery and poverty, under the incredible horror of each of those unbelievable uh, um, groups of people, Persia and Greece and, and, and Egypt and Assyria and Rome, while the very internal structure is suffocating them with the self-righteousness they can't compete with. Does that sound hopeful to you? That's almost as hopeless as Adam and Eve might have felt coming out of the garden. Do you know when the next time is that we hear from God on this planet after 400 years of silence? It's, um, it's a priest. His name is Zechariah. He's hanging out in the temple one day, and his wife, uh, she was barren. Now, in the time of Jesus, if you were barren, unlike our time, it wasn't only difficult, because it's difficult in our time too, when you find yourselves in those spaces where you can't have kids, right? But our culture, when you can't have kids, we have compassion on you. We feel deeply for you. We're like, man, we're so sorry. We want to journey with you. In the time of Christ, you were considered cursed and you were shunned. So not only did you live with the struggle of not being able to have children and seeing that dream realized, but you were also, you had to live in secrecy because in many ways the society thought of you as cursed. Zechariah always wanted kids, so did his wife, but they could never have kids. And they were older now, so that was past for them. Zechariah had long since abandoned the notion that he would have a child. An angel shows up and speaks to Zechariah in the temple. Do you know where we find that story? The very opening act of the New Testament. So blank page, blank page, New Testament, whoop. Matthew. Okay, we're not going to read Matthew. We're going to go to Luke. But let's pretend Matthew, Mark, and Luke um, are all equally the first book, right? Because they are. Because Luke starts in the same place Matthew does, in the same place Mark does, in the same place John does. So they're all four equally the first book of the Bible, okay? So we're just going to read from Luke because it describes it there in a neat way. But in the book of Luke, chapter 1, verse 16, listen to these words now. The angel appears to Zechariah. 400 years of silence from God, 400 years of the enemies of God rising up, not being silent. And here's what he says. The angel shows up to Zechariah, chapter 1, verse 16, the book of Luke, page 947. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. The angel is speaking to Zechariah about the child who will be born from him and his wife. Okay? Your wife's going to have a kid. You're going to have a kid. And here's what he's going to do. And here's who he's going to be. And he will, verse 17, go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Isn't that awesome? The angel uses the same language that God left the people with 400 years earlier. You're going to have a son, Zechariah, and he's going to be in the spirit and power of Elijah. And he will turn the fathers back to their children and the children back to the fathers. And he will prepare the people of God to be ready for the one that I am sending. Just like I said in the prophecy, hey, keep the law. Stay, stay, where you, stay, stay the course because I'm going to make you ready and then I'm going to come with power. You know what's happening at about the same time as this is occurring? Just about the same time in history. There is a young woman, teenager. She lives in Nazareth. She's betrothed to a young teenage boy. 
And an angel shows up to her as well. Her name is Mary. And he says to Mary, God is going to supernaturally conceive a child in your womb. And this child will be like no other, for he will be the one for which God is preparing the way so he can set his people free. Okay, now, before Mary births Jesus and John, who will be the child of Zechariah and his wife, comes to be, listen to what God does next, okay? <laughs> Luke chapter one, here we go. This is why Christmas is full of hope, ready? Luke chapter one, verse 67, here it goes, verse 67. And his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied. Now, that's a big deal, that sentence. You know why? When was the last time we know of that someone was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied? 400 years earlier, his name was Malachi. Okay, isn't that awesome? And so now, for the first time in 400 years, the Bible says, and God filled Zechariah, and Zechariah prophesied. He's speaking for God. Look at this. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. Do you hear that? That is present tense, boys and girls. Present tense. This is no longer about what will occur. This is about what is occurring in this very moment. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our fathers, Abraham, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear." in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. This is now his son, John. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his way, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God. Now here it is, watch this. Whereby, as they are prepared, the sunrise shall visit us from on high. Where do we hear that? Malachi, and the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings, whereby the sunrise will visit us. Look, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. The first prophecy in 400 years, and God says this. Remember what I said 400 years ago? It's happening now. Hope has come. Hope has come. Now, remember, the people of Israel, after 400 years of being in poverty and slavery under these great nations that were the enemy of God's people, they were not looking for a baby born of a virgin in a little town called Bethlehem. They were looking for a warrior born to fight, a king born to rise, a lion who will overthrow the empire Rome that st stood against them, right? So they're not looking for a crying baby in a manger. They're not looking for a lamb. They're not looking for a gentle teacher. They're looking for a warrior king lion. And God prophesies of one who will come that will set them free from their enemies so that they would live, wait for it, righteously before God. You with me? 
after Zechariah prophesies this, as all the people are waiting for the great warrior king to rise up and become the Lion of Judah, who will set them free from Rome, you know what happens? Mary and Joseph travel to Bethlehem on a long journey to go sign some documents. They get there. Jesus is born in a manger in a, in a cave. There's no guards. There's no fanfare. There's a couple shepherds that come from the field who stayed overnight in the field, hadn't even showered. Angels showed up for the shepherds. Mary and Joseph hang out for a while in that part of the world. Some guys come from far, far away in the east to come, bring them some resources. And why do they have resources? Because Herod ends up finding out that there's a king born and he starts wiping out babies to try to get to the king. So an angel tells Mary and Joseph, I want you to flee to Egypt. So, so far, here's what we have. The great warrior king is born, the lion of Judah, in a cave, in a manger, and his parents are running scared. Sound like that's what the people wanted? They come back from Egypt, and Jesus disappears into history until he's 12. We don't hear a peep. At 12 years old, we get a quick glimpse of who he is, and then he disappears back into history until he's an adult. You know what he does when he disappears into history? <laughs> that's right. He goes up into the mountains and meets a great ninja and becomes an incredible warrior. No, no, wait. That's all the movies. He carpenters. He does carpentry. He works with wood. He doesn't even make weapons. He makes carpentry stuff. By the time he comes out and we see him, he's not a warrior. He doesn't have a sword. He hasn't learned ninja skills. He comes out, he's baptized, he goes into the temptation, and he starts walking around, and you know what he does? He teaches. He teaches gently like a lamb. He heals people. It's beautiful and powerful, but he heals people. He doesn't overthrow anybody. He doesn't derail anyone. He doesn't, he doesn't kill anyone. He, he, doesn't, he doesn't fight anyone. He just... He just lives his life in this wonder and people start following him, but they all get it. They're like, oh gosh, he's just setting them up. He's setting them up. So they follow him. He goes to Jericho. He's got a great following now. It's been three years of doing incredibly powerful supernatural things and teaching with great power. He goes into Jerusalem. He's going to overthrow the government. And you know what they do to the gentle teacher lamb? They nail him to a cross and he dies. Is that what the people wanted? Is that what they thought they needed? Nope. Not one bit. Until what? Until he rises from the dead three days later. Peter stands after he walked into the empty tomb and the Bible says he pondered all that Jesus had taught him. See what that, that verse means is? He came awake. He came awake to this fact. God could have easily come to our planet as a warrior king to overthrow Rome. That would have been a cakewalk for him. Do you know why he came as a baby in a manger, weak? Do you know why he lived a gentle life? Do you know why he went to a cross? Because if he came, wait for it now, if he came as a warrior king, the Lion of Judah, we could not have slaughtered him. He would not have died to pay for our sins, to overcome an invisible enemy that made Rome look like a joke. And to set us free from unrighteousness so that we would live righteously before God, not because we were self-righteous, but because God became our righteousness. It was in his death, in weakness, at least seeming weakness, 
that he did the greatest work we could have ever imagined, setting us free from our enemies, sin and death. You see, as always, the story of Christmas, the story of Jesus, the story of the gospel is that we have a story in mind that we think is awesome, that we think is great, and then God shows us his story, and it's way better. Adam and Eve started in the best story of all, and they lost it because they wanted more. We start in the worst story of all, thinking we have everything we need right here. If I get the right relationship, the right resources, the right circumstances, the right likability, the right people around me, the right this, the right that, then I will be happy. But it keeps running us out of happy until we encounter the story of Christ through the clarity of the gospel. And then Jesus whispers to us, don't you get it? The story you dreamed of that is not the story. The story I have for you is the reversal of the garden coming out of nothing into everything. For thousands of years, since Zechariah and Mary and Joseph and the shepherds and the wise men and so many others during that time encountered Jesus, millions of people have been encountering the risen Christ through the story and the clarity of the gospel. One of those people lives among us here. Well, actually, Many do. If you know Jesus, then you're one of them. But we didn't film your story. We filmed one story because that's all we had time for. And I want to share with you a story of one who you probably know well because you've bumped into her. If you come to this church, you may not even know you've bumped into her, but her name is Carrie Waters. And she wears a blue shirt and she buzzes around like a butterfly in the lobby. And she does these things. And when you're, you're done with Carrie Waters, you, you can't leave this church. It's so awesome. You're like stuck. Because she's so awesome. But Carrie wasn't always that hopeful little butterfly that buzzes around the lobby. That wasn't always her story. I want you to see in clarity what happens when a person has dreams of a story they have. And then they encounter the difficulties of this planet. And then they encounter Christ. And then he writes a story for them that is beyond imagination. This is the hope of Christmas. This is the hope of Christ. Take a look at this. I grew up in Chicago. I had a great relationship with my mom. My dad and I didn't really uh, get along very well, so the things that I did, I did very much so to kind of earn his approval and to kind of get his attention. And I had a lot of hope in what his thoughts were of me. When I was really, really little, I wanted to work at Disney World. I had a desire to be married and have children. Those were my, probably my greatest dreams. When I got into high school, I met a boy, his name was Rob. We started dating and I definitely fell in love fast. I thought, man, this is the man I'm gonna marry and have children with and uh, my dreams will come true. Through college, continued dating. At the end of college, had talked about marriage. He was basically like, well, why don't you go down to Disney World and um, work at Disney for a couple of months, get that out of your system. And uh, when you come back, you know, then we'll start our life together. I thought, it's a great idea got the job as a Disney college program. Ended up auditioning for entertainment, which was another dream job. And then I got a phone call. Uh, it was Rob. He basically was like, you know, I wanted you to go to Florida because I knew I had cancer and I had to have some surgery and I thought it would be over by the time you get back, uh, but it's really bad and they don't know how long I'll live. 
I flew back to Illinois and um, went back to be with him. And he had a surgery, uh, a very intensive surgery, and ended up surviving that, which was great. But it had spread to through his blood and, and his lymph nodes in his stomach. So the journey was gonna be a lot more intense than we had thought. I remember thinking at that time, this man that I love might not make this. And um, I didn't know what to do with that. After about nine months of chemotherapy, um, the doctors came back and said, you're doing great. The only thing is, you know, you probably won't be able to have a family. He was crushed by that. Him and I just started having different conversations. When he would talk to me, he was like, I don't want you to have this life. He ended up breaking up with me. I was devastated and I didn't know what to do with that because I was prepared for him to die, but I wasn't prepared for him to break up with me. My hopes and dreams are now shattered there. So I decided I was gonna run from my problems and just stuff everything and just go back to the happiest place on earth and um, hopefully that will solve everything. I went back down to Disney World. I slowly just started dying a little on the inside and emotionally and um, running to coping mechanisms and uh, auditioned for everything I could so I could um, have that feeling of accomplishment and uh, acceptance and love. And I noticed in that environment, it was a false reality of, of love, a reality of, I want to know you, but I don't really want to know you. Even though I had a little more people in my life, I was dying. My three favorite people in my whole life were Rob, my grandpa, and my mom. I got a phone call that my grandpa had cancer and he wasn't gonna make it. And I just remember uh, when I lost him, he definitely was a lot of my smile. Um, and so slowly dying a little bit more there. And then um, my dad had called. He's like, Carrie, your mom's, your mom's sick, you need to come home. I remember walking away from that and thinking, ah, no, I just can't do this. And going into my apartment and thinking I'm done with life. And I remember going into my closet because that was really the only place that a party wasn't going on. <laughs> and I remember thinking, God, I don't know, but I, I thought I did good and I'm just, I don't know what to do now. And I'm, I'm, I'm super done. And so there was this feeling of peace and I didn't know what that was, but I just remember feeling a little bit different. And um, I remember thinking, man, I have to figure out what this is because I feel something's different right now. And looking back, I know that God was just saying to me, I'm not done with your story. Darlene Buck was uh, doing prayed with me and I remembered she was Catholic and I thought, okay, I'm gonna see if I can go to church with her. And she's like, you know what, this guy in my neighborhood, he's starting this church up. I remember being eager and excited to see, you know, what it was like and I walked into the lobby and in the lobby there was you know 10 of us there wasn't a lot of people I remember sitting and listening to the message and when I left all these people 10 of them wanted to know me and they wanted to get my phone number and have coffee with me and I remember thinking gosh this is I, I feel so good here these people are different something's different about them they desired to know all of the brokenness and they desired to show me Jesus and that he could fix the brokenness and that feeling of that they, that they desired to know Carrie. They loved me in my mess. And uh, as I was a hot mess, for sure, uh, they loved me through it. Uh, Mosaic's very special to me. Um, the community here is 
is different. And um, I think it's because they live the gospel and they care for the gospel and they protect the gospel and make it beautiful. And it affected my life in a powerful way. And so now I just get to be a part of a team who literally uh, trains people to make the gospel felt and known in the lobby. And the fact that I get to do that with my life because of how it affected me in a lobby is a great gift from the Lord and I'm so thankful. My hope is in Jesus and it's Jesus plus nothing. Disney's fantastic, but the reality of entertainment, the emptiness that that can bring, it can be meaningless. Everything's meaningless without Jesus, but I can sit with these girls and I can share Jesus with them and pray that, that they understand and that they start following him so that they too have the hope that I found in him and the contentment and the peace and the joy that only comes from him, that doesn't come from anything in this world. What I've realized now is that I'm thankful for my story. Uh, Jesus is my hope and it's not about um, being married and it's not about having children because that hasn't come true for me yet. But the reality is it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what my status is and it doesn't matter how much money I have or how many friends I have or what my job is or what my talents are. What matters is that Jesus is everything to me. He is my hope. Isn't it amazing? An amazing, an amazing thing. <clears throat> that when we encounter the risen Christ, that what we had placed our hope in becomes so small in comparison to the story he begins to show us he's authoring for us. On a much smaller scale, as we enter this Christmas season, like we always do in the Western culture, we have filled up the simplicity of the season with a thousand other things, haven't we? We've got parties and traditional meals we make now, and we've got gifts under trees, and we've got red guys in suits, or rather, guys in red suits uh, flying around, or a guy in a red suit flying around with reindeer. Uh, we've, got, we've got all the stuff going on. And, and what, what could happen very easily is that we could have our anticipation, our, our wonder, the hope that we have found in what's under the tree, or who we're going to see for the first time in a while again, or how this is going to go, or how that's going to go, or how this is going to turn out. And, and we miss so easily what everything is about as we enter this month. That there was once a time in our human story where we had no reason to hope. We had no reason to hope. And that time is over. Because the one who changed that came in a manger as a baby to be the Lamb of God, to rescue us from sin and death, not as a king in a castle and a warrior to overthrow Rome, which would have left us in our sin, hopeless in our death. This is what Christmas lends to us, the reminder of the great hope we have. And over the next few weeks, we're going to travel through the Advent journey, which is just a traditional way of walking through the great words that are affected by Jesus, hope, which we just covered, and then joy, and then peace, and then love. And we're going to watch people's stories, just like we did Carrie's, unfold over the next three weeks, and how those words have impacted even them today, and how Christ has utilized his story to impact the human race with those words. And what I want you to do, along with me, is to soak in the wonder of hope this week, and then the wonder of joy and peace and love as the weeks unfold. 
And let us fix our eyes on the great wonder that is Christmas. In Romans chapter 5, there's this beautiful unpacking where God says, we were once not at peace with God, but we are at peace with God now because of the work of Jesus Christ. And he says this, and we have a hope in Christ, and this hope will not disappoint us. Welcome to Christmas. Let's pray. God, thank you. Thank you that though we were hopeless as a human race, that you brought hope to our story in a big picture, but that you also take each one of us individually as we encounter you, and we take the ordinary story in which we live, the place we have our hopes and dreams set, and you show us that regardless of our life story, you have a story for us bigger, better than we could have ever imagined. When we want a warrior king, you come as a baby in a manger and a lamb. When we want one set of dreams, you give us a bigger set, a better set. When we think we will find everything in the ordinary life we live, you show us that everything is waiting for us in the extraordinary story you have. God, may you surprise and delight us this Christmas with a new sense of the hope that you have brought to us so that we would soak in it, be captivated by you, and find ourselves fixed on who you are this Christmas. We love you, we worship you, and we thank you in Jesus' name.